0: Please listen as I read from John chapter 6. Last sermon, I began to introduce Peter to you. I'm anticipating beginning a series of sermons on Peter's first letter. And to set the stage, I want you to understand a little bit about Peter. So I'm taking a snip from his life so that you can hear his Coming to know Jesus, and then his confession about Jesus and how he professes his faith in Jesus as his Savior. We're beginning in verse sixty. If you look back at the beginning of the chapter, though, you'll note that there's a setting here. Jesus has provided a miraculous feeding of a crowd of five thousand or more people. And then he uses that setting to teach in the synagogue. And he preaches a message. I am the bread of life. And he calls the people to believe in him and him alone for salvation. But he says it in a way that is is startling. You must eat my body. You must drink my blood. Because of this, we pick up the reading in verse 60. There is... There are people who wonder what is going on here. So beginning in verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then, if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak Spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, For I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of of the living God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Jesus called on the crowds to recognize that he is the bread of life that comes down from heaven. He called them to believe in him as the only Savior, the only way of salvation. The crowds, though, were more interested in what Jesus had provided to them physically. He filled their bellies with bread. They were more interested in the show that he put on. It was a miracle. He had 5,000, just a few supplies. And so they became offended when Jesus said, you must eat my body and drink my blood. The crowds departed, going away because of these hard sayings. And there were even some of his disciples who question this and who are offended. And this this deserves a little explanation. That disciple can be a little confusing because it refers to two different groups. We most of all apply it to the closest followers of Jesus Christ, what he calls here the 12, Peter and James and John and those other 12 disciples. But there was still a larger group that were also attached to Jesus. Those men and women who were listening to his teaching and following after him. There was a group of men and women that were, were doing that. But in this case, as Jesus speaks to them, he speaks to that broader class of disciples and then to his 12 closest associates. And he speaks to them because of the offense that they have taken over his words. This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And So Jesus addresses them. He says, the words that speak to you are spirit and they are life. And it's this teaching that Peter then picks up in his confession. You have the words of eternal life. And Peter holds on to this confession throughout the rest of his life. And we'll find that it's something that it brings up in many different ways in his letter to the churches. It becomes one of the themes of his letter. So from this passage, I want to consider the nature of that confession. The nature of what Peter hangs on to, which is really the gospel. Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. And in this context, I want to say two things because as Jesus presents them, there are some who depart, and there are some who cling to him. So I'll examine it in, in those two ways. First of all, seeing how hard hearts have deaf ears, and secondly, how soft hearts have open ears. This all to to go to this main idea that Jesus has the words of life. My exhortation to you is to believe that he is the Christ, the son of the God, and you will be saved. As Christ presents the gospel of life, those who heard his words without faith are shown to have hard hearts and deaf ears. He was teaching that you can only be saved accepting him as Messiah, but he phrased it in a, in a very interesting way, didn't he? So imagine being there when Jesus said something like this: "Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you cannot have eternal life." Well, that's rather strange, isn't it? If you heard someone say that, you would might jump to some conclusion that he's proposing some weird form of cannibalism, eating, eating his body and drinking his blood. But what Jesus is doing is providing something, an object lesson. The crowd came to him and he provided bread for them. It was a miracle, a miracle. To prove and confirm his divine nature and to confirm the words, especially, that he spoke. They're often talked about signs and wonders, signs that point to something, not just the filling of your belly, but the confirmation of who Jesus is and the words that he was proclaiming to them. And in this case, they are thinking about bread. They were thinking about how God had provided something they needed for life. You have to eat. You need to eat to live. And so Jesus uses that almost like you might do with young children, giving them an object lesson in words and pictures they will understand about you need bread for your soul. I've provided this bread so that you can eat and be full. I will provide spiritual bread so that you may have everlasting life. And what is that bread? In Jesus' words, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that comes down from heaven. This made some of his followers uncomfortable. They grumble about it. This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Now, from this, we conclude that some of them may have taken it literally, but uh, that seems like a little bit of of a stretch. Surely, a teacher, the stature of Jesus that he was already acknowledged to be would not be proposing something like that, literally eating his body and blood. More likely is that they understood what Jesus was saying. They just didn't like it. So what was it that they didn't like? That Jesus... Is the only way of salvation that He is the promised Messiah that God had, had been been telling would the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Remember, John the Baptist picks this up and proclaims Him as such, and those first disciples understood that this was the Messiah. Remember how excited Peter was to finally have the anointed one in their midst. But others were not so pleased about this. And by their words, they say not only that they don't understand it, but they say who can accept it? The sermon was hard. Because their hearts were hard. their unbelief stems from their rebellion, not their lack of understanding, because they refused to accept Jesus' words. so Jesus goes on to confront their unbelief. He goes on to confirm this point that there's only one way of life, only one way of salvation, and that is through faith of God. So he asks, does this cause you to stumble? Has it tripped you up? What then, he says, if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before? You see, Jesus was answering their objection, and if you look back in the in the earlier part of the chapter, there were some who objected to that phrase, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. And they answered that. And they said, well, what's he talking about? We know who his parents are. We know that, uh, that he comes from the, uh, from the carpenter's shop in Nazareth. How is it that he's claiming to come down from heaven? And see, they were grasping the, uh, the impact of his words. He was claiming divine origin. He was claiming to come from the side of the Father. He was claiming to be the Christ. And so Jesus says, not only did I descend, but you will also see me ascend to where I have been, where I came from. And it's a really fascinating argument because here's another miracle that he is prophesying that will give further confirmation of who he is. I like the way John Calvin talks about this. He says that Jesus is is pulling back the veil so that you can see the glory of God at work in Jesus Christ, that you could see that he is the Son of God, the glorious one. And each step along the path of his life and his ministry Gives another glimpse of that glory. You can start with his incarnation, and, and Calvin names these off, and I will too. Start with the incarnation. God became man. God took on human nature so as to be our Savior. But then listen to the authority of his words, his public ministry. He preaches and he teaches with power and authority, confirmed by miracles. Think of the cross. Christ takes your penalty on himself. Or the resurrection, the glory of God revealed in Christ as he defeats death itself. Or the ascension, as Jesus mentions here. Christ is caught up into the clouds. He's caught up into the glory of heaven. And there he is received by the Father himself, and he is seated there at the right hand of God the Father. And from there he dispenses the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and continues to do so. And he will yet come again to judge the living and the dead. All of these things are points that draw back the veil and show you the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ. And he's answering this uh, this objection from, it, uh, from his opponents that he is all-glorious and he is the only Savior. But all along the way, people continued to turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to Jesus Christ, catching what he was saying, but refusing to accept it. And Jesus gives another answer here. He says that the flesh profits nothing. It's the spirit that gives life. In other words, he chastises them for continuing to think about their physical bodies and for continuing to think of the Messiah in the constructions that they had made of him rather than what scripture spoke of, what he was proclaiming and how the spirit was testifying of that. His body is broken for us. His blood is shed for us. And without faith in him, then you depart from the one and only Savior. This prompts me to ask, are you having a hard time swallowing the words of Jesus Christ? Could it be that you understand what he's saying, that he is the only way of salvation, but you're just refusing to trust in Jesus as the only Savior. Perhaps you want a Jesus that fits better into your ideas. Maybe a Jesus that doesn't make any demands on your life. Maybe a a Jesus that is, as you think of him, as being less severe. Perhaps you want a Jesus that's just one way of many ways to come to God. Not this narrow teaching that he is the only way of salvation. Well, if that's the case, be warned. You become guilty of remaking Jesus in a way that suits you better and that departs or turns away from one and true living God. J.C. Ryle puts it this way, so long as the heart is naturally proud, so long as the heart is naturally worldly unbelieving, and fond of self-indulgence, then you will always find people who will say of Christian doctrine and precepts, these are hard sayings. Who can hear them? Who can accept them? Deaf ears come from a dead heart. If you reject Jesus, then you have no part in his salvation or his glory. But Jesus has come to proclaim a way of escape from that, which leads us to soft hearts have open ears. So Jesus turns to his own disciples, those 12 that were closest to him, and especially Peter now comes to be the the center of attention. And he says to them, you do not want to leave too, do you? And I can imagine that all throughout this occurrence that the disciples' faith was, was shaken. Remember that they too were mere men and they were excited about the kingdom of God and that, that they too sometimes had misconceptions about what the kingdom would be and what the Messiah would be. So when Jesus was in the midst of a crowd of 5,000 teaching and miraculously feeding them, you can almost catch their excitement as as there's this building enthusiasm for the ministry of Jesus Christ. And then he proclaims this, this strange and maybe confounding message, I am the bread of life, eat my body, drink my blood, And and the crowd's... Wither away And then then that other close circle that had been following and attending to Jesus Christ, they too began to depart. You might think that the disciples would be scratching their heads at this point. But fortunately, the disciples had their eyes on Jesus, not on the crowds, not on the circumstances. By God's grace? They had faith in him as the son of God. And Peter speaks that, uh, speaks of that faith. He confesses that faith in these really sweet words. When Jesus asks, will you two depart? Peter replies as spokesman for the others. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. You have the words of life. Where else can we go to find that? You see, by faith, Peter was clinging to Christ, understanding what Jesus was saying, that he was the Messiah, that he was the only way of salvation. No matter what the religious authorities said, no matter how many crowds withered away and turned from Jesus, no matter how the world scoffed at Jesus and his disciples, they believed. They had their eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. As I quoted from Paul's words in Romans, I, I say again here that they believed in his gospel, that it was the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To go anywhere else was to their own destruction. Where can we turn? To whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. That confession provides, uh, provides a pattern for you in the midst of a scoffing world, in the midst of those who would say, who do you think you are to be following after Jesus? Who is this Jesus? You're, you're crazy to be holding on to him. Peter's confession provides you with a guide. Where else will you turn to find salvation? In the midst of doubts, in the midst of others falling away, in the midst of those who might even persecute the church. Remember Peter's even desperate confession. Where else can we go? There is no other place. There is no other Savior. Peter continues, Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Here the text emphasizes the word we in a way that draws attention to it. You might underline it in your mind. We believe. Contrary to the stream of people flowing away from Jesus, Peter says, no, we believe. We believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And I want you to notice the aspect of faith that comes through here. We often talk about faith as uh, of having component parts of, of there being knowledge and assent and commitment. And Peter's simple confession has, has those three fundamental elements of faith. Knowledge, you have to know something here to believe in, Faith is not in faith itself. It's not nebulous. There's something true, absolutely, measurably true, that is proclaimed. Jesus is the Christ, and he is the only Savior. And Peter says, we believe and know. There's something to know here, and his faith is based on knowledge, the truth of Jesus Christ. In contrast, the unbelieving rejected the plain truth that Jesus was speaking. They rejected him as the Messiah. Peter says we believe, and that word believe has the sense of assenting to a revealed truth. It's one thing to say, uh, here is something that is proclaimed, but it's another thing to say, I acknowledge that that is true. I hold to that. Once again, in contrast, the people around understood his claim, but wouldn't accept it as true. They denied it. And to whom shall we go, says Peter. Faith has commitment. In fact, it's not complete until it does commit. It commits to follow Christ. It commits to believe in him, to receive and rest in him as the only Savior. And once more in contrast, the unbelieving followers turned back away from him. So in this confession, Peter confesses this faith of his and of his disciples. And he will do so the rest of his life, sustained by Jesus, of course. And I hope you remember that that Peter's faith wavers. Peter, too, is merely a man. But we're not saved by the perfection of our faith. We're saved by our perfect Savior, Jesus. And when Peter wavered and even denied Jesus on that dark night when Jesus was betrayed by Judas Iscariot, that he even knows about here. Even on that dark night, when Peter betrayed Jesus, Jesus faithfully held Peter. Peter, you will betray me three times, even before next morning comes. But I have prayed for you And when you return, strengthen your brothers. You see, faith comes by the Spirit. comes by the will of the Father, by the work of the Son, by the motion of the Spirit. And Peter clings to this, as we do. Lord, who is the author of life, has given his spirit to sustain you, to break open a heart of stone, a dead heart that was deaf to the words of Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ breaks open that heart so that you may believe. And he sustained you all the way and Peter grasps this. He clings to it. You can see it in the preaching that he does that's described in Acts. And you will hear it in the letter that he writes to a persecuted church who are suffering dark days and were tempted to turn away from Jesus. Peter in his confession and in his preaching and in his writing is saying, Hold to Jesus. Where else will you go? He has the words of life. And that's a confession that rings true in every age. To whom shall we go? Where will you turn to find salvation? Where will you come to have peace in this life and comfort for your soul in the, in the, in the days to come? Can you find anything better? J.C. Ryle answers it. Can we better ourselves by turning our back on Christ and going back to our old ways? We cannot. Then let us hold on our way and persevere. If your eyes are on the praise of men or the comforts of this life only, And the gospel of Jesus Christ will seem absurd to you. This is a hard saying. Who can accept it? But if you know there's no way out, if you know there's nowhere else you can go, pray that God would give you faith to receive and to rest in him all of your life to rest in his Son, believing that he is your Redeemer. May each of you be strengthened in your faith, knowing and believing, committing to follow after Jesus, the Son of the living God, who has the words of eternal life. Amen. In Psalm 116, David speaks about the trials that we go through in this life. And yet, how we cling to our Redeemer. And as you sing this, may it be part of your profession today, in light of God's word, that proclamation of being the bread of life. In light of the sacrament that we will celebrate together, how fervently I love the Lord My cries for help he hears. He is the one who sets us free from the cords of death. So let us stand and sing Psalm 116, Selection A.